Good morning again, everybody. And if you're joining us, uh, if you're just now joining us online, I want to say good morning again to you. Thank you for being here. Hello to my wife who's at home. You guys, pray for my wife. She's not getting any sleep right now. We've got a, we've got a, a three-week-old baby, and he, is, uh, he sleeps when he's next to mom, which means that mom doesn't sleep when he sleeps. And so be praying for her. She wants to be here with us. She wants to, uh, she wants to be with you guys. She wants to introduce the baby to everybody, but she's exhausted. So give her grace. She'll be back here in no time. And uh, once she's back here, everybody can hold the baby. We don't, it's our fourth baby. We're just going to pass them around the church, you know. <laughs> You take a baby, you take a baby, a baby for you, everybody gets a baby. Well, I'm glad to be here this morning. Easter's coming up, I'm excited for Easter. April 4th, and uh, here's what I promise you, everybody who's watching online, uh, I promise you this, that if if you invite people who are far from God... Your neighbors, people that have been on your mind for a while, maybe you've been waiting to, inter- to, to, to invite them to church. I promise you that if you invite those people to church, I promise that I will bring the word of God in a way that, that draws them in and presents the gospel of Jesus to them. Uh, so, and, and I will make an invitation for them to meet Jesus. And so I, I will create an atmosphere here uh, that will allow for people to come meet Jesus if you promise to, to invite your friends and invite your family and bring them into church, because that's what we want, right? We want people to come to the knowledge of Jesus. Well, I, I want to say thank you again for your, for your faithfulness and giving and, and for being a part of this church. And if you want to give uh, to, the, to the mission and vision of what God is doing here at, at this church, you can give in the box on your way out. Or you can give online at afraidoffoursquare.church and click on the Give tab there. Thanks again for your generosity. God is using those finances. By the way, uh, I, here's a praise report. I don't know if we've shared this with the church, but we, we were fundraising a little while back to repair the roof. Maybe some of you noticed that we had some people on the roof of our church this last week. We've got a brand new roof up there. And uh, we had been fundraising uh, for the roof for a while. And uh, when we got the final quote from, from um, some, some roofers, it was a little bit more than we had anticipated it, it costing. And so... Um, I reached out to the Foursquare District and said, hey, like, you know, would, would you guys, do you guys have like a fund to help churches? You know, because our, our building actually belongs to the Foursquare Church, the, the denomination. Um, and so I said, do you guys have a fund for helping local churches uh, help with their buildings and stuff? And they said, well, we used to, but we kind of ran out of money. But how much are you short? I said, well, short about $8,000. And they said, well, let me get back to you. About an hour later, I got an email Saying, yeah, no problem, we'll send you a check for $8,000, we'll cover the rest. Well, here's what happened. Uh, somebody on our council in one of our council meetings said, hey, we pay insurance, so we should reach out to insurance first to see if they would cover the, the cost of the roof. And so we reached out, and sure enough, they covered the cost of the roof 100%. They covered the cost of the roof. So we sent back the money to the Four Square District, said, thank you so much for your generosity, but we're going to give this back because we want to we wanna make sure that the, the churches who really need this get this money. And uh, because we have all this uh, money that we, had, that we had raised for a building fund, we are now able to spend that on other building projects. We have a plan to enclose uh, the front of the church here and kind of bring in uh, the, the kids' rooms that are here on the other side of this wall. We want to make sure that there's no exterior entrance, but that 
uh, we want to put a hallway over there so everything is enclosed and in, in, inside. And so because of God's faithfulness, and uh, we, we, get to, we get to spend that money on other things and see uh, God use that in other ways. And I'm just so, so, so thankful for that and so thankful for God. And thank, I'm so thankful for your generosity as well, that you've, you've committed yourself to this church. And, and um, let's get into this message. We're in the, the series called Exiles. And if you're joining us uh, for the first time, we're in Daniel chapter 5. This is week 5 of a series that we've been going through all about the, the time period when God's people uh, were, were carried out of Jerusalem into exile, into Babylon, King Nebuchadnezzar had attacked Jerusalem and had taken God's people, about a couple thousand of God's people, uh, into Babylon and wanted to initiate them into Babylonian culture, wanted them to worship pagan gods and, and bow before these images and just become like the Babylonians. And there was a few that resisted, and there were, there were a few that, that, that honored their authority, but also critiqued the idolatry that was happening in the culture. And those men were Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. The prophet Ezekiel was one of those men that, one of those men that were carried off into exile. And these people uh, really show us in the book of Daniel how to remain faithful to God in the midst of a godless society. And the book of Daniel is a book of hope. It's written to bring hope to generations uh, even now, generations in between Daniel and us and generations in the future that are going to be waiting for the return of their Messiah, King Jesus, and wondering what does it look like to remain faithful to God in the midst of a culture that does not care about God, that doesn't care about the biblical values that we hold uh, in, in God's word. And so that's what the book of Daniel was written for. Uh, like I said, we're going to be in Daniel chapter 5. You can turn with me in your Bibles there. And maybe you've heard the colloquialism. That's a hard word to say, Colloquial, colloquialism. Maybe you've heard that saying. I'm just going to say that. <laughs> you've heard the saying, the handwriting on the wall. And uh, that, that phrase that we say, that saying, it usually means something uh, uh, referring to some sort of impending doom. But that phrase originates right here in Daniel chapter 5. And it's where uh, Belshazzar, so King Nebuchadnezzar, we read last week, um, Nebuchadnezzar lost his mind. He went crazy, and for seven years he, he roamed around like a, like a beast because of his pride. God humbled him, took away his kingdom from him, took away everything, and he lost his mind. He was driven into madness for about seven years until he humbled himself. He looked up to heaven and declared that God is the most high God, and his sanity was returned to him. His kingdom was restored to him, and we know from our historical records that he passed away about three to five years after this experience. Well, King Nebuchadnezzar has been dead for a couple generations, and now his grandson, Belshazzar, is on the throne. And Belshazzar uh, is, is, is arrogant, just like King Nebuchadnezzar was. And Belshazzar is sitting at this table uh, with thousands of people. They're having this drunken party. And, uh, and he orders that, um, he orders that the, the, the cups and the sacred items that were taken from Jerusalem. When King Nebuchadnezzar attacked Jerusalem in Daniel chapter 1, the Bible says that he was allowed to take some of those cups and artifacts and, and sacred items from Jerusalem's temple and bring them back to Babylon. And in an act of aggression and arrogance and pride and blasphemy, Belshazzar knew what he was doing. He ordered that these cups be brought 
and, and, and used at this party with all of his wives and concubines, and they would drink out of them. And um, here's what happened is at the party, uh, they see this hand, this floating hand appear out of nowhere and start writing next to the lampstand this inscription on the wall in a language that nobody could understand. And the hand was writing on the plaster and, and it says that Belshazzar was terrified, that his knees were knocking. Scripture says that his knees were knocking, that he was frightened. He had no idea what was happening. And everybody at the party could see this handwriting on the wall. Everybody stops, but nobody can interpret it. So what does Belshazzar do? He does what King Nebuchadnezzar did. He calls his diviners and his magicians and his sorcerers first to see if they can interpret this handwriting on the wall. And just like in the reign of King Nebuchadnezzar, none of those people could interpret the language that was on the wall. But the queen came to Belshazzar and said, there is a man who has insight from from god and he can tell you what these what these words mean so they called daniel and belshazzar says whoever can interpret the writing on the wall will be given gifts and will have a a gold chain placed around his neck and will be will be will be blessed with all these gifts and daniel shows up to the king and he looks at him and says you can keep your gifts i don't want them and he rebukes Belshazzar before he begins his, his translation, his interpretation of the words. He rebukes Belshazzar because he tells Belshazzar, you knew what happened to Nebuchadnezzar. You knew that he had lost his mind and madness for seven years because he was prideful. He was arrogant. He spoke out against God Most High. You knew all of this and still you blasphemed him and still you decided to do this. And this is what the inscription says. And so we're going to take it from Daniel chapter 5, verses 22, where he interprets the writing on the wall. Starting at verse 22, he says, But you, Belshazzar, his son, have not humbled yourself, though you knew all of this. Instead, you have set yourself up against the Lord of heaven. You had the goblets from his temple brought to you, and you and your nobles and your wives and your concubines drank wine from them, You praise the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which cannot see or hear or understand. But you did not honor the God who holds in his hand your life and all of your ways. Therefore, he sent the hand that wrote the inscription. And this is the inscription that was written. Mene, mene, tekel parson. Here is what these words mean. Mene, God has numbered the days of your reign and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed on the scales and been found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Then at Belshazzar's command, Daniel was clothed in purple and a gold chain was placed around his neck and he was proclaimed the third highest ruler in the kingdom. And that very night, Belshazzar, king of the Babylonians, was slain and Darius the Mede took over the kingdom at the age of 62. Here's what's happening in the background. Like I said before, Belshazzar is actually the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar, even though in the Bible he refers to Nebuchadnezzar as his father. And kings would do that just so that they would associate themselves with greater former kings. But Nebuchadnezzar was actually his father. And what what historical records show us is that King uh, Nabonidus was actually the last king of Babylon before Babylon was attacked by the Persians. But where was Nabonidus? 
Actually, we had no record that Belshazzar ever existed until about the mid-1800s. The Bible was the only source of information that we had about Belshazzar until about the mid-1800s. But we know that Nabonidus was the last king of Babylon, and Belshazzar was actually his son. So where was Nabonidus? Nabonidus was off fighting Persia. And what is his son doing? Instead of preparing and, and, and getting ready for an attack that he knows is coming eventually... He's throwing a party for all of his nobles. Thousands of people are there. And when we look at Persian records, they even talk. Persian records talk about how when they attacked Babylon, there was a drunken feast happening. And they talk about how easy it was to take the capital city because there was a bunch of drunk nobles there. Nobody was prepared for the attack. And Belshazzar brings all of these uh, sacred items from the temple, from Jerusalem, and blasphemes God. And usually... um, uh, it, it was not a common practice to, to, um, to try to infuriate a, a, a foreign deity. But Belshazzar is being very intentional here. This isn't just like, oh, hey, I know of some gold cups that my father had stashed away. No, this is bring those cups because he's trying to make a statement that I am greater than any god. He's trying to make a statement. It was an arrogant uh, It was this pride. It was this blaspheming. It was aggression. He was being arrogant and Daniel comes and rebukes him and he gives Belshazzar the the interpretation of what was written on the wall and that very night Persia attacked Babylon and he was slain that very night this is this is Daniel chapter 2 the prophecy that Daniel had given King Nebuchadnezzar about the statue with the four medals if you missed our week two of exiles King Nebuchadnezzar has this dream of this great statue. It's got four medals on it. And there's this head of gold that represents Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon. And, and Daniel says, but after you will, will come a lesser empire, the chest of silver. And, and they're going to come and they're going to take over the kingdom and they're going to rule. And this, at the end of this chapter, is the fulfillment of that prophecy. That, that Persia has now come and taken over Babylon. So the interpretation that Daniel gives uh, that Daniel gives to Belshazzar is, is, is for him, but it can also be taken for us living today. We can, we can read these words, and the truths that are spoken to Belshazzar are also for us today. Let me try to refresh my notes here, because I have this old version of my notes. and uh, There we go. Now it updated. This is the problem with using an iPad when you speak. Yeah, you got to make sure it's all updated with the internet and everything. I believe we can still learn from Daniel's interpretation of these words. And, and, and I want to give credit where credit is due. Much of what I'm about to talk about from, for the rest of my message uh, comes from a book that I've been reading. Maybe some of you have read it. It's called The Daniel Dilemma. And it was written by Chris Hodges. He pastors one of the largest churches in the nation. Uh, it's Church of the Highlands in Birmingham, Alabama. And I would highly recommend this book. It's a, it's a wonderful book about just what we're talking about, how to live godly in the midst of a godless world. It's called The Daniel Dilemma. And the first word that Daniel interprets for Belshazzar is this, many, many. He says, your days have been numbered. Did you know that your days have been numbered? that you have a set amount of days to live. And anytime you think you have more of something that you need, you tend to waste it. I remember my wife and I, when we bought our first house in Newburgh, uh, we were so excited when Halloween came around because we never got to really, 
pass out candy before. We never, we've always been the ones as kids going to door to door collecting candy, but we were never the ones who got to pass out candy to others. And so we were excited for the opportunity to be those, those cool parents, you know, those cool people at the house who were giving candy away. And so we, we bought some candy and, and kids, you know, they started showing up at the door and they're so cute and they're dressed up. And we're just like, yeah, take a handful, take as much as you want. We're giving it away. Well, about an hour later, we run out of candy. And now we're those really lame people on the block, the people who ran out of candy way too soon. And so we, leave, we turn off the porch light, right? Because that's what you do when you don't have anything to give away. You turn off the porch light, close the blinds, and anybody that knocks, you just ignore it, right? Just go away. I don't have any candy for you. But we thought we had more. We thought we had more, and we, we wasted it. When there's lots of money in your bank account, then you feel like you always have enough. But when you're down to your last box of mac and cheese or your last box of crackers, right? Suddenly these things become precious and you no longer take them for granted. I remember a time in college, my, my freshman year at OSU, I was on a meal plan and I just blew through my meal plan so fast. And the last two months of school, I didn't have any money left on my meal plan. And so I was eating a lot of top ramen and a lot of cup of noodles and, and they were precious to me, right? And anytime I found some quarters in my ashtray or any, any change lying around, I thought, yes, I can have a feast today. I'm going to go to McDonald's and get a burger off the dollar menu. I'm going to have meat in my belly. It's going to be glorious. It became precious, right? You begin to value those things when you know that you have a limited amount. Well, time is a limited resource. Time is the one thing in your life that you can never get back. You can never get time back. Most people live with the belief that they're indestructible and they've got plenty of life left. They've got plenty of time left. But we can never be sure because we aren't fully in control of the days we have left. left. And when we recognize our limitations, we tend to make the most of our lives. When we recognize that our days are numbered, that we only have a limited amount of time left, we, take, we, we, we tend to make the most of our lives. And there's a couple things that we can do in response to this reality that our days are numbered, there's a couple things that we can do in response to this reality. And the first thing that we can do is we can choose to live every day with a sense of purpose and urgency. It's easier said than done. Choose to live every day with a sense of purpose and urgency. Let me ask you this question. I, I found this in, this in this Daniel Dilemma book that I was reading. I just thought this was such a, a fascinating thing that this church did. They uh, conducted a bunch of interviews uh, with people who had, uh, who had terminal cancer. And they, they were all terminal patients. And they only had a, a number of days to live. The doctor had told them that your days are numbered. And so they interviewed all of them. And they sat them down. And, and uh, the point of it was to, to ask this question to the church. was to present this question to the church. What would you do if you only had 30 days left to live? If you had 30 days left to live, you knew that your days were numbered, what would you do with your life if you had 30 days to live? What activities would you eliminate out of your life? I know for me, I'd get rid of my social media. I can't tell you how many times I've been on the couch next to one of my kids and my kid is trying to talk to me and I suddenly realize that I'm not paying attention to my child because I'm scrolling through my Instagram or Facebook page. I'm completely ignoring the most important thing in my life, my family, right next to me. I'd eliminate social media. I'd eliminate online browsing probably. I'd probably eliminate spending too much time at work. I'd go home. 
right as, right as I was finished. I'd just go right home because I want to be with my family and those that I love. What activities would you begin to include in your life if you knew that you only had 30 days to live? I'd probably want to spend more quality time with my friends and my family, right? Invite them over. I'd, I'd want to have honest conversations. I'd want to right my wrongs. I'd probably be apologizing to a lot of people, right? I'd probably get, get, I'd be getting rid of all the grudges that I've been holding, all the unforgiveness and bitterness that I've been holding in my life that's been keeping me bound. I'd be getting rid of all those things. That's what I would include if I knew I only had 30 days to live. Like I said, this church in Alabama, they conducted this series of interviews with these terminal patients and and when they ask them how they see their life now, now that they know that their days are numbered, what, what has changed? And they all said the same thing. They all said, what I thought was important wasn't really important. And all the things that I thought were just little things, they became everyday practices. So just those moments with my kids before I leave the house, making sure I give every, every one of them a hug and a kiss, making sure I make eye contact with every single one of them and tell them how much I love them. Those become everyday practices. Those are the little things that we take for granted. Devotions with Jesus, time spent with Jesus. This time on earth that we, this is the only time that we have to worship and praise our God uh, by, by, let me, let's say this. This is the only opportunity on this side of heaven with sin still abounding on the earth to worship God. And we choose, even in the midst of sin and even in the midst of a broken world, to lift up our God and to make him the most valuable thing. We choose that every single day. Yes, we're going to be worshiping God in heaven, but there is a special time here on earth that we have to spend time with Jesus, to develop a history with him, to develop a relationship with Jesus every day in our devotions with him. Choose to live every day with a sense of purpose and urgency. Another thing that we can do in response to this reality is we need to put first things first. First things first. Make sure your priorities really are front and center each day. Don't put off focusing on people and principles that matter most to you. I would encourage you to regularly check on how you're spending your time. Reorder your schedule as you need. And here's a, here's a, here's a thing that that I'm still learning this. Maybe some of you can teach me how to do this a little bit better, but I'm trying to get good at saying no. We need to get good at saying no. When you're tempted to hold a grudge against a loved one or, or, or feel sorry for yourself, then you got to think to yourself, no, ain't nobody got time for that. My days are numbered. I can't hold a grudge against this person. It's going to keep my life from experiencing the fullness that God has for me. I'm not going to choose bitterness. I'm not going to choose unforgiveness. My days are numbered. I want to experience everything that God has for me. We got to get good at saying no to those things that try to crowd our minds and choke our lives. Say no to those things. The reality is that our lives are slipping through our hands like water. They're slipping through our hands. And if we don't slow down and refocus on what matters most, we lose something precious and irreplaceable. The second word that Daniel tells Belshazzar is tekel. He says, you have been weighed. And the reality here is that my life can be unbalanced. The first one is, my days are numbered. And the second reality is, my life can be unbalanced. Daniel says, you have been weighed on the scales and been found wanting. In other words, he says, not only are your days numbered, but we're also responsible for how we spend them. 
We're responsible for how we spend our days. Every week or so, I step on the scale at home to see how far away I am from my target weight. Anybody else do this? And that scale has become my enemy. I mean, it has become my enemy. I get on that scale, I go, oh man, the heaviest I've ever been. Marriage has been good to me. I just side note, I remember the first time I came back to visit my Christina's grandmother. She's Romanian and she doesn't speak any English and Christina has to interpret for me. My wife is fluent in Romanian, by the way, because she is Romanian. And um and and uh I we came back from our honeymoon and we came to visit uh my grandmother and uh she says something in Romanian that I don't understand and Christina just starts laughing hysterically and I said, What did she say? And she says She says that I'm a really good wife. I said, and what else did she say? She says, I'm a good wife because you're bigger and I'm not. (laughs) I said, did your grandma just call me fat? (laughs) Yeah, a little bit. That scale has become my enemy, but it's really my friend because it's showing me how far off of my target weight I am. It reveals reveals the reality in my life. Let me ask you, what would you discover if you placed your life on the scale? That's a scary thing sometimes to step on the scale. Oh boy, I don't want to see the truth. I don't want to know what's really going on. I like to pretend that I don't know what's going on. But what would happen if we put our life on the scale? What imbalances would we see? What would be off? If we don't prioritize our lives, here's the reality, somebody else will. If you don't prioritize your life, somebody else will. If we don't discover God's design for our lives and live them on purpose, then we will be overtaken by the pulls and pushes of those around us. God alone knows how many days we have and how we should spend them. In Psalms 139, verse 16, it says this, All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. All of your days were ordained. So here's what we can do in response to that reality, that our lives can be unbalanced. This is what we can do in, re- in response. So we can regularly take inventory. Take inventory. You know, many big companies, they take an inventory of their stock, and maybe you've seen them, you know, the employees around the store taking notes of, of what's been purchased. Maybe you've done this at, at, at the store before. Maybe you were an employee there. But it's a simple practice. And it helps determine what is being purchased by the customer and what is being wasted. What's going to waste, what's not being purchased. And we need to take a weekly inventory of our lives and check the conditions of of, of different areas in our life. We need to take an inventory of our marriage. How's my marriage doing? How are my friendships doing? How's my family I need to take an inventory and look at my kids. I, I do this every once in a while. I'll look at each one of my kids. When one of them is acting up or one of them is acting a little bit off, I take an inventory and I go, how much time have, have I been spending with this child? I know I've been, I've been dedicating a lot of time to the new baby. I've been dedicating a lot of time maybe to, to the girls, but maybe Gideon, my oldest, has just been a little left out. And so I take an inventory and how's my family doing? How are my relationships in my family doing? How's my faith How's my faith? Take an inventory of your, of your faith. Do I, do I trust God? Am I full of hope? Am I full of joy? Am I anxious? Where's my faith at? Take an inventory of your attitude. What's my attitude like? Have I been grumpy lately? Have I been short with people? Have I had a short fuse? Take an inventory of your finances, of your creativity, of your physical life, your social life, and grade yourself. 
Be honest with yourself. Put your life on the scale and allow God to reveal to you what is unbalanced in your life. Because your days are numbered. We need to live life to the fullest. Grade yourself. The second thing we can do in response is we need to make tough decisions. Make tough decisions. What do I mean by that? We need to eliminate the non-essential. Eliminate the non-essential. Something has got to go. And here's the truth. Saying no to the non-essential frees you to say yes to the essential. If you're always saying yes to the things that God has not called you to do, and yes to all the extra stuff in your life, and you're, uh, you don't have time for the essential. You don't have time for your marriage. You don't have time for your family. You don't have time for Jesus. You don't have time for all the essential things in your life. Saying no to the non-essential frees you to say yes to the essential. Likewise, we take on more than we ought to by saying yes to things not within our calling. And we sacrifice the things that God has called us to do. I found this, I, you know, I've, I don't know if I've ever recognized this verse in Scripture. And this week I read it, and I popped into Cheryl's office. I said, have you heard this verse before? It's beautiful. Ecclesiastes 4.6. I don't know how you all feel about tattoos, but if I were to get a tattoo, this might be it right here. Better one handful with tranquility than two handfuls with toil and chasing after the wind. Better one handful with tranquility than two handfuls with toil and chasing after. Isn't that opposite of our American perspective? Right? Our perspective here is get as much as you can. Get in there, grab as much money as you can, work your way up the, the, the corporate ladder, do as much as you can, make as much as you can. But what does that do? It hurries our life. It makes us busy. And suddenly we're saying no to the things in our life that really matter because we're trying to chase after the wind. We're trying to chase after things that just aren't going to last. They're going to rust and decay and go away. We can't take those with us to heaven. Better one handful with tranquility than two handfuls with toil and chasing after the wind. It's better to have less of what doesn't matter and more of what does. It's better to have enough so that you can enjoy what you have than to have more and never enjoy it. Peace is better than stress. Less is truly more. I was reading this book. There's a, there's a really good book. It just came out a, a couple years ago by a, a pastor in Portland. called John, His name is John Mark Comer, and he wrote a book called The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. And this book came at a perfect time. I felt like I was, I was taking on more and more at work. I was homeless. I was spending weekends at work. And, and I was just getting stressed out. And I, I just said to myself, I need, I need to readjust. I need to step on the scale. I need to figure out what's not, what's not balanced here. And I read this book, and, and he actually talks about in the book that, that there was a study conducted, um, and, and, and I, I'm going to have to go back and, and find this. You can find this in this book, the, the Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. But there was this study conducted about Americans, and, and um, the, the, there's an actual number, like an income number that you can— um, how, how do I say this? I, there, there's a number that you can make and still find joy— and then after you make that number right there, you start to get less and less happy. They noticed, they, 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 they surveyed all these people from different income levels, and they found that there was actually a number in America, like a, an income number, where you can make this number, you had enough to provide for your family, you had enough to pay for what you needed to pay for, but you still had time for the important things. But then they noticed that 
all the people that started making more than that, most of them were spending too much time at work, were spending too much time just, just chasing after the wind, and they weren't enjoying their life. They, didn't ha- they, they weren't enjoying their life anymore. They couldn't spend time with their family. I just found it fascinating that the Bible knows what it's talking about. When it says, when it says you know, that, that there, is, there is a limit, there's, there's enough, but after that, it's chasing after the wind. I'm not saying making a, a, a ton of money is a bad thing at all. Not at all. What I'm saying is that we need to make the essential, we need to make the important things priority in our life. We need to, we need to weigh our lives. And the third thing that we can do is focus on the things that will last. Focus on the things that will last. Matthew 6.33 says, Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all of these things will be given to you as well. Focus on the things that will last. Mene, mene, tekel, and the last thing that Daniel says to Belshazzar is parson. He says, your kingdom is divided. His father is off fighting the Persians, and what is he doing? He's throwing a drunken party for everybody. He's not on the same page. The kingdom is divided. Let me tell you that your heart can be divided. Your heart can be divided. God cautions us against dividing ourselves into fragments. Our health, our relationships, our potential, everything in our lives. If we don't change, this division and fragmentation will eventually destroy us. When your heart becomes so divided, it can destroy us. But there are warning signs. When we, when we live our life, we, we, we can look out for these things in our life, these warning signs in our life that, that indicate to us that our hearts are being divided, that we're being pulled in two separate directions, that we have one foot in the kingdom of God pursuing him and one foot in the world pursuing the things of the world. Our hearts become divided. But there are some warning signs. And here are the warning signs. Here's four warning signs to know that your heart is being divided. The first warning sign is that sin seems more attractive than usual. Perhaps you've recognized in your life, I, I don't know why, but this sin is just seeming more attractive to me than ever before. Maybe your heart is beginning to be divided, and we need to take this to the Lord. See, your resistance to, to sin is lowered when you are mentally fatigued and physically tired. When you're not taking care of yourself, and saying no to those things that are, not, to, that are non-essential. When you're not taking care of yourself, you become mentally fatigued and physically exhausted. And your resistance to sin is, is lowered. The first warning sign is that sin seems more attractive than usual. The second warning sign might be that your emotions are inconsistent. Your emotions are inconsistent. We've all had a bad day from time to time, right? We all know what it's like to have a bad day. But if you find yourself straining to keep the lid on and your emotions and your your fuse is short you find yourself lashing out at people and you ask yourself where did that come from where did this feeling come from where did this emotion come from or why am i so agitated why am i so depressed why am i so anxious all the time if you realize if you recognize that your emotions are inconsistent maybe it's a warning sign that your heart is being divided and you need to ask the lord to come in and make yourself whole once again for him to come and 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 renew you and put you back together the third warning sign might be this maybe you've become less productive here's here's a truth that the faster you go the less you produce 
the faster you go, the less you produce. That's why when some of us have an old lawnmower and we're mowing the lawn, the faster we go with that old lawnmower, the, the, you know, the less of a great job it does cutting our grass. And so we take it at a nice pace so we can cut that grass nice and even. The, the faster you go, the less you produce. Maybe you've noticed in your life you become less productive. And here's another warning sign. Maybe you can't hear God. It's been really difficult to hear the voice of God in your life. And you're asking yourself, why can't I hear his voice? Maybe you hear competing voices instead. It's a warning sign. God's trying to get your attention. I want to spend time with you. I want to speak to you. I want you to stay engaged into my presence. Don't wait until it's too late. Do it now. Don't wait for a breakdown. So many of us, we wait to change until... It's easier to change than it is to stay stuck in the same place. Don't wait that long. Don't wait that long. Don't wait for a breakdown. Don't wait for you to become exhausted. Don't wait for people to come to you and say, listen, you are off. You are angry. You are depressed. You are anxious. Don't wait for that. Do it now. Ask the Lord to to put your heart back together. Ask the Lord to balance your life out. Here's a, a verse of encouragement. Maybe, maybe this is you. Maybe you're in this room and, and you've been thinking, this, this feels like it's for me, that I've, I've been divided. I, I haven't heard the voice of the Lord. I've been agitated lately. Here's what the Lord encouraged us to do. In Psalms 46, verse 10, he says this. He says, be still. Be still and know that I am God. That's a hard thing to do sometimes, to be still. Believe me, you know, after having a newborn, I, I want, the, the expectation is for me to take a, you know, some time to be with the family, and that's what I want. But you know how hard it is for me to be at home with the family and to focus on what's important and just to be still and not worry about what's happening at work and at church and, and all that stuff, but just to focus on my family. It's so difficult to be still and allow the Lord to speak to us. Be still and know that I am God. I want to invite uh, Kurt forward and, and Jethro and Cheryl, if you guys would come forward. I, I want to invite you as our prayer team. And I'm going to ask the, the church to stand together. I ask these, these people to come forward. And, and this, I want to start doing this every week. As if you need prayer, if you need somebody to come alongside of you, to encourage you, to lift you up, to speak to your heart, I'd encourage you to, to, to come up to one of these people and ask for prayer because these are, you, you know these people, they're, they're godly men and women and they want to they encourage you and speak into your life. But let me pray over you as a church. Father, I thank you for your presence in this place and God, I thank you that you are here with us and you are, uh, God, you know that our days are numbered. You've counted them out. Father, open up our eyes to the reality that our lives are for you. Our lives are to be lived for you. Not in selfishness, not in pursuit, chasing after the wind of the things that aren't important, but Father, show us the things that are important. God, help us live with the understanding that our days are numbered, that we have limited number of days, and that we can choose how to live those days, Father. Help us be humble enough to stick our lives on the balance and, and, and reorient our lives around you. And God, I pray that that, that any hearts in here that are be beginning to be divided, Father, would you, would you recorrect that? Would you put us back together in pursuit of you? Jesus, we love you. 
God, I thank you for your presence. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Once again, if you want prayer for anything, these guys are going to be up here for a little bit, and they're going to they're pray over if you. They're going to pray over you. God bless you. We'll see you next week. Remember, let's invite people to Easter.